Okay, now um, we're going to have our reading. Uh, as you know, we started the Book of Ephesians uh, last week with our help from our colleagues at Ashford. And uh, it was um, <coughs> Liam that shared the message last week. Now, the Book of Ephesians, uh, we're going to start reading from chapter 4. I will read the whole of 1, 4, 4, 1 to 16 this morning. We did chapter 4, 1 to 6 last week, but it will lead into verses 7 to 16 much more easily. And so I'll do that now. And this is entitled, The Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. So let's read the Lord's Word now. And it says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And now we'll hand over to John Manger from Ashford, who is going to help us understand the Lord's Word in this chapter much better. Over to John. Thank you. Well, good morning. Or good morning, Staines Congregational Church. Uh, my name is John Manger, as I expect you've already been told. Um, I'm one of the serving elders over at uh, Ashford. And this morning, together, we're going to be having a look at the second part of that reading we had from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 down to 16. And as we get into this uh, little section of this particular letter, I wonder if it perhaps presents us with a problem. Now, the problem goes like this. 
someone's talking to you. They're telling you lots of things. And eventually you have to stop them and say, why are you telling me all this? Do I need to know all this? Do I want to know all this? Where is all this going? And that may be our initial thought when we hear what Paul has outlined for us here as Christ's gifts to his people, as Mark's indicators of his grace to all of us. And we might be saying, yeah, OK, but why are you telling us this? Where does this take us? Well, if you keep the passage open or if you have the passage open on your tablet, maybe a paper Bible, a bit old school or whatever you're looking at it on, cast your eyes back to verse one. Chapter four, verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul writes, I urge you uh, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. That's the headline across chapter four. It's the headline across the second half of the letter. He's asking us to be what we are. In other words, if you're a born again Christian and there is no other type of Christian, that you live like one. He doesn't use poetic language, he doesn't use evocative language, but a life which is worthy. Later on in this uh, same letter, he's going to talk, us, talk to us about living as those who are wise, not foolish, not living the way we used to, of being imitators of God. And as he puts it in verse 13, a little further down our passage this morning, living in such a way that the end goal is that we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he's prayed pretty much that in chapters one and chapter two, that Christ basically would be formed in us. And this is not the only time he ever says it. Romans 8, you may remember, those who are predestined and are called are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That doesn't mean to say you look like a 30 AD Galilean carpenter, but that you are made in character like the son of God. The Christian's calling, the Christian's goal is to be like him. Not a Messiah, but the character of God in Christ reformed in you. Indeed, that's kind of the start point that Jesus has in mind when he says to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, the famous incident where he says, you have to be born again. Before you can see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You are dead, normally. We're born dead. We're born alive. But spiritually, we're born dead. And unless God raises us from the dead, as Jesus puts it, the time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and those who hear it are going to live. Not talking about the resurrection particularly, but about those who hear his voice in this life and are raised to spiritual life. Live as that reality inside you. That's why Paul tells us the things he does. So let's get into the passage. We're going to divide it into three parts. Three parts. First of all, in verses 7 to 11, there are four gifts. They have one purpose, but there are many results. So verses 7 to 11, we'll look at what the four gifts are. Verses 11 to 13, we'll look at the one purpose, which we've already kind of touched on, but he elaborates on that in verse 13, 12 and 13. And then from those in 14 to 16, there are many results. And that's all the we ideas. We will now, many results, much action, much change, much growth. 
So, first of all, Paul leads off in this section. To each of us, that is to every one of us, every one of us in the body of Christ, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And we'd say, yeah, that's fine. We, yeah, we go with that. That's salvation, isn't it? Or that's eternal life. Yes, it's that. But he then nails some specifics onto that statement. When he ascended on high, and he's referring now to Psalm 68, an occasion in the Old Testament when David orchestrated the carrying of the temple, sorry, of the Ark of the Covenant up to what would later be the Temple Mount in the middle of Jerusalem. He gave, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men, which is what David did on that particular occasion. He gave gifts to the people. All the people were there and David blessed them and fed them. All of them received something from the king. And in a similar way, as Paul puts it here, when Christ ascended, he gave gifts. But we can make a mistake at this point. We can think that he means we, he gave gifts to each individual member so that each possesses some gift, which is true. But that isn't what Paul's thinking of here. He thinks of that in, and he writes about that in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. Easy to remember, two places where there are the lists, the lists of the familiar gifts, the familiar lists of gifts that are given to the Christian church, to individual believers, a range of things, administration, help, preaching, giving, and so on and so on and so on. But that's not what he's talking about here. And of course, it's a kind of a mark of our self-interest that we immediately go, hmm, hmm, I was hoping he was going to give me something. Or we say, well, I can see these four people here, apostles, prophets, um, evangelists and teachers. Well, I'm none of them. Hmm, I haven't got a gift. Hmm. And we go sour. That's our self-focus. No, what Paul's talking about here, as Christ is gracious to his people, is something more like the way the National Health Service comes to all of us as a gift out of the past. 1944, the government decides that they'll create this thing. And it's given to all of us for all of our benefits. None of us own it. None of us possess it. But all of us benefit from it. And that's the idea here. To each of us, grace has been given, as, Paul has, as Christ has given these four gifts to the church for all of us. And very quickly, we need to say, well, what are they? Apostles? That's not too difficult to work out what they are. That's people like Paul, Peter, James, John, and the rest of them. Those who witnessed Christ themselves. You remember when uh, Judas has hung himself and is being replaced, and they're together, they say, who can, who shall we replace him with? And, the, and I think it's Peter comes back and, and says, someone who has been with us from the beginning. Paul, of course, the last apostle, as he puts it uh, of himself, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus, turned around completely, but he also met the risen Christ. Well, none of us are apostles, even though you'll find knocking around the Christian church people who claim to be, they are sadly delusioned, they are deceived, and so are the churches who accept them. There may or may not be prophets, but I think Paul's thinking here the same as he was in chapter 2, verse 20, where he talks about the church being founded on the uh, based on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet you may remember it built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with christ as the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises as it builds itself up in love paul's referred to them already those have been his gifts to all of us and they are still his gifts to us now 
here we are, uh, 2,000 years later, I have exactly however many years since Paul wrote Ephesians and the ink dried, this set of words from that man in Christ's economy and grace are still his gift to us. Who would want to take Ephesians out of the New Testament? None of us, I hope. His gift to us. Evangelists. Evangelist is one of those funny transient things, isn't it? Almost everyone who's ever become a Christian, maybe not everyone, but almost everyone has met or been influenced by an evangelist. There's only one person called an evangelist in the New Testament, and that is Sir um, Philip. Philip the evangelist, the chap who's involved in uh, meeting that Ethiopian guy on his way home, having been up to Jerusalem to worship. And he's called an evangelist afterwards. He's not called an evangelist at that stage. He goes up to Samaria. He does the intersects with the, the Ethiopian guy. He goes down to Joppa. He ends up living in Caesarea, where Paul uh, meets him or stays with him later on, 20 odd years later. And he's referred to then, in hindsight, as uh, Philip the evangelist. Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist, but it's a transient role. Everyone who hears about Christ ultimately has probably met an evangelist. Even if it was your mum, on your bedside, when you were very small, who told you that Christ loved you, you met an evangelist. And the last one is the pastor teacher, the shepherd teacher, of which Timothy uh, is perhaps the great example. Peter classifies himself amongst them, and he writes in that style in his letter. You may remember Jesus's words to Peter uh, towards the end of things, amongst the last recorded words of Jesus to Peter on the lakeside in Galilee, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my flock, that idea. And when Peter writes his letters in order to remind us of all that he's seen and known, that we might know it too, he writes as a fellow elder, a fellow pastor, teacher. Gifts given to us for all of us. We don't possess them, but we all benefit. What's their purpose? <laughs> what is their purpose? Why give apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers to the people of God? It's a little bit like that Christmas gift, isn't it? You, you, you're given a gift and you unwrap it, unwrap it on Christmas Day and you look at it and you go, what is it? What is it? I don't know. What do you do? Or, or okay, I can see what it is. Why do I want one of these? That's probably the more common, you know. Why, why would I want to take one of these in the car with me? Or why would I want to put this on my desk? Or whatever the gift is. So what is the one purpose that they have? Well, there it is in the next section. We're now in section two. Uh, the one purpose, this is verses 12, uh, 11 and 12 onwards. Their purpose is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And as a kind of throwaway at this point, maturity and attaining that is the goal or should be the goal of every Christian. There are no graduations of class or quality we should all be are intended all to be aiming for the same thing to become like our saviour so what do they do 
They prepare God's people for works of service. How do they do that? Well, they don't do it by coming round and cutting your lawn. They don't do it by spending hours and hours and hours giving you meals or delivering good things to you. They do it primarily the same way that Jesus did it. And you can read the kind of things that Paul says to Timothy and you get immediately a flavour. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and in the, and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, Paul's saying, this is serious. You've got to listen to this bit. I give you this charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Ah, and that is what every one of those roles ultimately is. And that's exactly what Jesus did as he paced those, walked those dusty Galilean roads with the twelve and the larger group of disciples with him, he was doing that. He preached when it was convenient to him and when it was inconvenient to him. He preached when it was convenient to the listeners and probably when it was inconvenient to the listeners. He corrected, he rebuked, he encouraged. Infinite patience, careful instruction. Only that which he'd heard from the Father did he pass on. Everything he said was accurate, correct, and for the growth and benefit of his people. Their role, prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastor, teachers, in that sense is identical to his, to help you and I know the God who has saved us, the one who made us and redeemed us in Christ. Ah. But then you say, well, that's, that's a little bit like the role of everyone who handles God's word. Yes, it is. And that's also why we should never sneer or look down or belittle those that do it or what they are trying to do. It is one of those funny things, isn't it? <clears throat> that now and then we kind of play silly games in our heads. We like to pretend we listen to the Bible, perhaps. But we don't like to pretend that we'll be heard to know to listen to other people. I want the word of God, not the voice of men. But unfortunately, for that line of thinking, in the way God has arranged his church, he gives us the privilege of passing on his word to one another. We'll come to that in a minute. One should never sneer or look down or wait for the stumble of the pastor teacher. Or the evangelist. It's a bit difficult to wait for the stumble of the apostles and prophets because they're mostly historic. But in its present form, in the local church, we shouldn't be waiting for them to stumble. I knew, I knew they'd get that wrong. I thought they probably would. It's not like that. They exist for our benefit. We don't delight when hospitals collapse. We don't delight when the health service is under strain. We don't delight it when our nurses or doctors or the anaesthetist or the surgeon gets it wrong. We don't go into hospital expecting that. We're happy when it's working. The same thing here. But let's keep going. That's their role. But that leads into what are the many results? So we've got four gifts, one purpose, to help people, God's people grow 
and equip them. But then that blurs into, well, how will that work out in practice, if you like, the last section? What are the many results? And I suppose that the divisions I've given are a little bit arbitrary. They're kind of fuzzy. It blurs in, one blurs into the other. They prepare God's peoples for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the measure of the fullness of Christ. Then he gives a series of negatives in the next six. If this is happening, these things will be avoided and instead good stuff will happen, which is 15 almost. So first he starts with some negatives, some things that won't happen. We won't be children and we won't be blown around by every wind of teaching that comes along. Now in verse 14, when he says we won't be children, he's not thinking of children as sweet and nice and innocent. He's thinking of them as weak and vulnerable and powerless. Those who, those who prey on children are preying on the weak. He doesn't want us to be in that category where spiritually we are weak defenceless and easy prey. Similarly, he doesn't want us to be blown around by everything that anybody ever says. That's why we go to the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's why we go to the word of God and we expect the boys and girls who speak to us from the word of God to tell us what the word of God says, not what they think. You know, the pastor's opinion on Brexit or Covid or nuclear physics may be interesting. I want to know what God says from his word. Help me see that. That's their remit. Because that way, we won't be swept around by every wind of everything that comes along. There is an enemy out there. We should never forget that. Disease never sleeps. Death never sleeps. The devil never sleeps. He doesn't take holidays. He doesn't take Sundays off. He doesn't take sabbaticals. He certainly doesn't ever endure a lockdown. He never stops. He's like rust. Rust never sleeps, as the old album title used to say. The devil and his agents speak one language. Lies. Do you remember what Jesus said about the devil? He is the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. His native language is to tell you, persuade you that God is not as he really is, that his love is not what it's made out to be, that the cross was not effective, that Christ doesn't really provide the way of salvation, that there are other, better, alternative, additional means to get to know him, that you can please him by doing some stuff which he's explicitly condemned and so on. He has no interest in your well-being, only in destroying anything and everyone that represents the God he hates. There's an enemy out there. Someone jumps up and tells you that they've got a red telephone, that they've heard from God that Christ is returning soon. Well, Christ will be returning soon, but that person's deceived. Someone jumps up and tells you, oh no, you've got to go to special places to pray. You've got to do certain things to get in contact with your inner God or your spiritual self. They're blowing smoke. They're talking from the other side. There's all sorts of things out there. Let the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, if you like, the pastor teachers help us to understand what God has said, not what the enemy has said. Then, 
Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So if you link verses 12 and verses 15, you get the idea. These folks, through the word of God, prepare us for works of service. What are those works of service? Well, they might include cutting someone's grass or preparing a meal or visiting someone. Of course they will. But the most important central thing they will allow us to do is to speak the truth to one another, to be like Christ, speaking God's words to one another. That is our privilege. That is our blessing. That is how we minister to one another. That's how we really serve one another. Discussing Brexit may or may not help us. Discussing Covid may or may not help us. Discussing how we cut the grass may or may not help us. But discussing how God loves us, what it means to come back to him in repentance, to discuss how faithful he's been, to remind one another how he's kept us through all this shambles that we've endured these last six or nine months, to remind one another of what he's like from his word, just as Jesus did. Ah, that, that is a work of service. That is how the body builds itself up. That is how the body builds itself up. That's why the gifts are given, to build the body up primarily through the word of God. If you like, if you take all this on board, if you grasp all this, it comes down to something like this. But there should be no such thing as a casual Christian conversation. I'm going to pray now. And let's pray that what we've been thinking about here sinks in. Let's ask him to God to help us. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is powerful. We thank you for the honour and the privilege you have done us and given us as your children, allowing us to handle it for one another's blessing. Would you help us then, Father, to speak your truth to one another, that we might build one another up. Lord, may your word never be far from our hearts and minds and memories and imaginations. Lord, help us to be like Christ, that through all this, not only would we grow, but that we would walk in a way which is worthy of the calling we've received. And it's in Jesus' name we pray that. So, thank you.